Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 341 and part two of my conversation with the director of percussion activities at the University of Toronto, educator, performer, and festival manager, Ayun Huang. We'll get back to her shortly. We are seemingly racing toward the end of the semester here at Mizzou. The schedule is as it likely is for all those involved in the end-of-year music performance activities, extremely busy. I definitely look forward to getting some time off very soon, but not now. That's about it for an update. So let's get back to our conversation with Ayun Huang. Last week on part one, which I hope you've had a chance to listen to, we heard about Ayun's job at the University of Toronto, her work as manager for the Soundscape Festival, her recent PASIC performance, and growing up in Taiwan and Canada. This time in part two, we'll get to hear about her undergrad and grad experiences, her early experiences with theatrical percussion, her work at McGill University in Montreal, and the usual close to our conversation. On a related note, there's a story Ayun tells near the end of the podcast where she refers to an audience reaction. The visual... For the context of that story, that's going to be kind of missing that I'm providing here, is a very slow clap. Very, very slow. So pay attention to that. Okay, let's get to it. We recorded this portion of the interview over Zoom on March 12th, 2023, and it begins right now. I came to Toronto because that's where my parents decided where we will move to. Mm-hmm. And once I got here, I was lucky because Toronto happens to have one of the best programs in the country. So that's just fate that I ended up studying with Nexus. Um, prior to that point, I didn't know who Nexus was. Mm-hmm. But then, then as soon as I met Russell, uh, I like him a lot because you know Russell is a very kind and gentle soul. Mm-hmm. So, so um, it was a great fit um, for me to study with him. You get to when you and your family move to Toronto. Are you do you immediately are you immediately at the University of Toronto, or is there are you like in high school to finish out or something? Yeah, I did one semester of high school. Okay. Yeah, so I graduated from high school in Taiwan. And then um, this is back at the time when the Canadian, at least in the province of Ontario, Mm -hmm. um, they still follow some of the old British system called the A levels. So we had these like basically college level courses that we had to take called, called, I think they were called the OAC courses that were used um, to evaluate um, university admission. So I had to do some of those. You just, so you just have this one semester that you have to do, that you have to do just to get in, right? Yeah, yeah. What was that like? That Is it like very, a whirlwind? Do you ever remember yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was very difficult because I, I came by myself. My parents didn't come at first. Mm-hmm. I came by myself. I did a six weeks ESL 
you know, English as second language course at the University of Toronto. And at that time, I was only 17. So um, I had a guardian, mm -hmm. well, I had somebody who needed to sign paperwork. So I, in this course, it was very special because um, my classmates were people from different walks of life. They were from different places. I was the youngest one of the cohort. Most people had undergraduate degrees. They came to improve their uh, English language skill set for work. So I got to meet um, a banker, um, teachers, engineers, uh, different people that I would have um, lifelong um, friendship with. So it was a very special time um, in my life um, because prior to this point, um, my community was primarily um, people who live in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So so basically like Chinese speaking, um, Taiwanese people. Then I was told I had to do this like English um, OAC courses, sort of this college prep courses in one semester because I was like running out of time. And that was very stressful. I mean, this is funny. I mean, at that time it was not funny, but I mean, retrospect, it was, it's funny because yeah. I, I enrolled in two different math, calculus, algebra, then English, then music. I took accounting and I took Canadian history and I took geography. Then I took physics, but this is impossible. There were too many courses. <laughs> Wait, all at the same time? So I took like six at the same time, right? Oh and goodness. then I, I had to pile out another one um, in the summer. But but so the first thing I chose was, okay, I better do Canadian history. So this was a college level Canadian history. And prior to this point, I didn't know anything so this course only had three students this course only had two other girls who really knew Canadian history plus me I was completely lost so that one month into the course I was like there's no way I can pass this course because there were too many names and I didn't understand the textbook half of the time because the textbook requires like two other books prerequisites so it was like impossible <laughs> so I went up to the teacher. I'm like, you know, I think I need to drop this course because I don't know anything. I'm not going to pass. So he said, yeah, you should probably drop the course. So I went over to algebra and I said, I want to take the algebra. I think I can pass algebra because it doesn't require language skill set. And right. I was always very good in math. My best subject at school was math. I'm, I, I happened to be in the music class that was specialized for gifted musicians, but overall math was, you know, my talent. So mm -hmm. I was like, oh yeah, I'll do algebra. I can do algebra, no problem. So so I did algebra and calculus. Um, maybe I should have taken the third one. I think there were three options in math, but then I thought that would be like cheating. So I did other things. I went to an accounting class. And I thought it would be good because, you know, accounting is math-based. Yeah, right. But no. <laughs> I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> because the math in accounting is very easy. But then there were all these other concepts 
that didn't make sense to me. So I was like, I can't do accounting. This is incredibly difficult and boring. I can't deal. So I dropped that too. So I, I kind of had a survey of all these different courses to arrive at six courses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So, so at some point I was kind of freaked out and I told Russell, I said, you know, I haven't received the admission. Will I be able to get in? And then he's like, oh yeah, don't worry. So, so it's fine. I got in at the end. Excellent. But it was kind of, I think it was a special admission time. I don't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, it, when you do come, you just, you mentioned the, um, you know, the guardianship. Is that, was that somebody you knew or was that a random placement? It was uh, basically the lady who uh, helped my parents to buy the house. Awesome. And it was quite brief. I I came, I was almost 18. It was not like I was in the beginning of 17. I was like going to turn 18 yeah. in a couple of months. So it was a brief um, period. Somebody needed to sign the paperwork. And I was trying to hide that. I was trying not to, you know, bring to the attention that I wasn't 18 yet. But one day the teacher came into the room and she's like, oh, can I see you for a second? You are not 18. Wow. <laughs> to be no, I, I am curious though, when at that age, did you did you look what what age did you actually look like? Like did were the, was were you like did you look very young or were, no, 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 no. Okay. No, no, no I, I could pass for undergrad easily. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. When you first get to Toronto, what's the first uh <laughs> welcome to t- Here's a here's somewhere that is completely new and I have that like kind of this is where I'm in Toronto now. <laughs> is there a moment? Okay, so I mean as immigrants, you always have this like crazy stories and and some of them are kind of hard, but there were some of them were comical. So um you know, coming from an island like Taiwan where most of the year uh, we're talking about temperature that's, you know, hobbles around between 70 and 100. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. like the range of weather that I experienced most of my life up to that point. And so when I came, it was the month of October. And, you know, my mom had bought me a jacket. <laughs> In quotes. Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so then I was like, "Oh, it's very cold here. It's very windy, and I, you know, I I was just freezing the whole time. And I would take the bus, and I remember the first time I was taking the bus, I didn't know you didn't have to raise your arm, or the bus will stop. So because in Taiwan, like there'll be like. 10 different numbers of buses that will share the same stop. So if you want to hold down one of the buses, you have to raise your hand. Otherwise, the bus would just like mm-hmm. run by. But here, every single bus stops as soon as they see somebody standing at the corner. So so I, I got onto this bus um, and there were some elderlies on this bus. 
Then at some point I need to get off the bus. So I push the bell. Then the bus stops and I'm like, how come the door doesn't open? Huh? <laughs> so then I was standing there. Then, then after three seconds, the entire bus says, step down, step down. And I was like, oh, what? what? Step down. I'm like, oh, step down. And then that's how I, you know, that's how you open the bus door. You just step down. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I was traumatized. I was like, Why are all these people screaming at me? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> oh boy. That's, <laughs> that's great. So those are kind of stories that you remember. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I think that's just <laughs> what was those those early days when you get acclimated to Toronto and you're studying with Russell, what was that like? Well, I think that was all very good. I was quite focused. So I remember only a few things from my undergrads. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I remember the practice room. Mm-hmm. And I remember moving gear. And I remember always being always late for my first class. <laughs> In the morning, I had trouble making it mm. nine o'clock. And I remember thinking that the lecture hall doors were on the wrong side. Meaning that when you go into this room, if you're late, everyone can see you. Uh, I see. I mean, it should have been on the other side. Mm. You know, I didn't want everybody to see me being late. But I think making to the first class at nine o'clock was difficult. Um, also because the commute here is uh, is tricky. The traffic is uh, unpredictable. So, so the commuting part was always kind of hard for me. At that time, the studio was quite small. I think there may be 12 or 13 people. And we were a large first year class. So in my year, it was like six people. So it was a, almost half of the studio was in my in my year. And so that was very good for us because then we had sort of a cohort of uh, students who could encourage each other. So yeah, I think that was great because now looking back, I, I think it was a special class um, because everyone in this class is still doing music. That's great. Yeah, and I think that's very rare. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. W studying with Russell, were was there a lot of Nexus stuff going on while you were a student? Yeah. So this was during the time that Nexus international career really uh, was at its height. Mm -hmm. So this is a few years after uh, Toru Takamitsu wrote the concerto for them. Mm. So they were playing like big halls uh, with famous symphonies in North America, but also abroad. And so they were on tour a lot. And so we actually uh, had to work independently quite a bit because Ru Russell was the only teacher for lessons. 
and Robin Engelman taught the percussion ensemble. And what was special is that Nexus always rehearsed at school in this period. So one of the rooms next to the studio was at this point, I think was the storage space for the gear for the ensemble. I witnessed how they prepared for tours quite a bit early on, not really knowing what's going on, but I was just around. So you could like see them packing the suitcase, you can see them rehearsing, and then you can see them running off and then coming back. And so I think just being able to be around um, that kind of experience really kind of helped me in a way that I didn't realize at the time, sort of preparing myself for what I would do later on for myself. Were they storing a lot of equipment at Toronto? Yeah. Considering that's, I feel like if any, if of among a number of things that people know about Nexus is just, they they have a lot of gear. They have to <laughs> with all the types of music they play. Yeah. So in the beginning, I think in at that time, most of the gear that they would use like communally, they were stored at school. And when they were not using it, the students got to use them. This is before they switched uh, over to Adams because they were with Corey for mm-hmm. a long time. And so um, we got, so I play on the Corey Marimbas throughout the period. This is became, this is before five octave Marimbas were the standard. Mm-hmm. It's just right before that. Yeah. Um, then when five octave became the standard at some point, I don't know exactly when, in the late or mid nineties, they mm-hmm. switched over to Adams. And then at that point, I believe they were not storing gear at school anymore. Then they had a different place for gear. What was the ensemble experience like there for you? Robin was great. I mean, he was inspirational, a generous teacher, and sometimes can be uh, very straight. He would tell you what he really thinks. And I think that was useful. Um, So when I was an undergrad, he, we actually played PASIC. Mm -hmm. So we played PASIC in 1993, I think. And so he really believed in the ensemble. He's like, oh yeah, he's like, my ensemble can play PASIC. We're going to play PASIC. And then we stay up overnight to record a couple of things for the adjudication. So I think, I don't actually remember what we play every single piece. I think I played the vibraphone part to Rain Tree. Then I may have played the marimba part to Mudra. And then maybe another piece by a student composer. You see, it was a small ensemble. So maybe it was an ensemble of 10 people. So we all got to play multiple pieces. So that was my first time at PASIC. So it was in New Orleans, 1993. Mm. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first time going to PASIC, you know, it's like, wow, it's it's like Christmas, but yeah. Yeah. 
but this time it's in it's also in New Orleans. <laughs> it's very different than going to Indy. <laughs> so like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like so incredibly grandiose, majestic <laughs> that it was like it took, took took a few years to understand. Oh, that was actually really good. I, but it, not just really good; it was much better than really good. I yeah. didn't really know how good yeah. it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what's always. I always am sad when. I mean, I I like indie, and indie is close to me. I mean, it's like five and a half hours away. But I miss when it was in Austin and and San Antonio because I just because I love those cities. I just want to go back to those cities. <laughs> yeah. I think San Antonio is very beautiful. Yeah. 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 And and it's a and it's a place that has that's where the Texas Music Educators Association conference is every every year too. So. Oh, so do you go there regularly? No, that's what I'm saying like I want I would like to go more often and I would just like it that PASIC was the reason. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. What what happened where do you go after you finish undergrad? I went to Paris, so I um, I went to study with uh, Gaston Sylvestre. So Gaston um, and Jean-Pierre Jouet and Willy Coquia, the three of them um, had this trio called the Circle Trio, Trio de Segle. And they were the pioneers in sort of um, music theater. Um, so when we think about um, the works of like Maurizio Cago or George Apegis, um, that repertoire of with Vinko Gobokar, mm-hmm. um, that repertoire all came out um, from the trio's work and collaborations with different composers. So they were a very special group, very different from Nexus because most of Nexus' work is based on sound and um, versus the Trio de Seclu's work, it's based on the concepts of theater and um, integration of other elements. So even early on in the 90s and 80s, I think they had like big collaborations with like Gamelon and they also commissioned a lot of works that are self-contained theatrical work that will include things like dancing and singing, multimedia, lighting design. So in terms of like where we think about this whole concept of interdisciplinary work, they were the true um, pioneers of the field. Yeah. Excellent. Now, how do you get connected to them off the bat? Before you even go there. My first teacher in Taiwan was Mr. Zhu of Zhu Percussion. Then I had a second teacher, um, Bornian Shi. Um, he was a student of Gaston Sivest. Bornian was always t- talking about how special it was to um, live um, as a student and an artist in France, in Paris especially. And so so I think that planted a seed in my mind early on in my childhood. So so when the opportunity came, I decided that I should do this uh, after four years being in Toronto. So I went, um, yeah, I went and spent one year there with Gaston. And in this period, I worked on... Uh, Mostly uh, Cargo's 
bien sûr. You know this piece? Yes, yes. I, I don't know it well, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, so this is a piece that um, Cargo designed like a stage set and every single instrument that you will find in this piece is made of wood. And uh, the story is it's about these animals in the circus mm. being played by three percussionists and they how they gradually go insane and that kind of stuff. So the whole thing kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cargo was a genius in the way that he thought about how to notate this, this stuff very early on. So everything that you will get from Cargo is fully notated for execution on stage, not just as musical material, but also as like staging material. So he tells you, like what you need to build, what instruments you need, how to walk from one place to another, what to do uh, at what time. So everything is notated using conventional notation, mm-hmm. which makes you know, the process of transmission of the work uh, fairly uncomplicated. There are other repertoire that the trio had commissioned where the notation um, was less clear. So early on, before YouTube was around, you mm-hmm. have to understand this is sort of pre-YouTube uh, yeah. period. Very few people were able to tackle any of this repertoire. And they would, they would know, oh yeah, this is kind of great. But very few people actually experienced it. So then this led to part of my doctoral research, actually. So my doctoral research was about helping to notate some of the ambiguity in the score so that more people can play this repertoire. And then this kind of led on to several different publications later on, including my um, DVD, Saving Percussion Theater, and then later on a chapter in the uh, Cambridge companion series. All right, I, I will admit I, I'm not, the theatrical style is not something I'm super familiar with. So would would scores or any information for performers be coming from a, like a more theater, like a play, like a way a play is designed, or would it be like uh, how choreography is put together for dance? Like what, what how would, how would these things show up and then be in the front of a percussionist who has to demonstrate these ideas? Well, I think you are proposing the most important question. So I think depends on how a piece is notated. Mm -hmm. They will either be situated in music or in theater or Mm -hmm. in dance. Mm -hmm. So I only tackle um, repertoire that is notated using musical notation. So meaning that musical framework is still its own primarily um, framework and reference and language and convention Mm -hmm. operating. That means all the events are notated using musical notation, whether if you use quarter 4-4 or if you use um, a timer, Mm -hmm. right? It's like a process that musicians understand. Um, in one of these pieces that I had played uh, by Jean-Pierre Jouet, he has a notation for dance. 
um, what we would call pictogram. I mean, so more recently, I think a popular piece that everybody plays now is um, Mar Applebaum's aphasia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so have you seen this uh, notation? For- I I've seen, just seen it performed. I haven't seen the notation. Yeah. So, Applebaum's piece uses this, this concept of pictogram. So mm-hmm. it just looks like a picture, mm-hmm. like a tableau. You know, it's like a painting. Then, then it has an annotation. If you don't want to read the annotation, you just want to look at the picture. I think it's not enough information to mm-hmm. to actually do the thing. So you have to look at the picture, look at the rhythm, because then the pictures are tied together with the rhythm. So you know, at this quarter B play this, at the next quarter B play that. Right. So then, using this information plus the annotation, it tells a separate layer of story. And then that separate layer of story is what makes the interpretation individual and interesting. So I I think if I use the Applebaum reference, then if we trace back, then we can kind of find this entire lineage of how the notation evolved, but also they really already exist since the probably late 70s. Are you... Uh, getting a degree in Paris, or is this just like a year of study before you move to the next thing? I have a French uh, diploma. Okay. The French system is slightly different, meaning that they don't have a required duration okay. study. If the teacher feels like you're ready to take the um, competition for the certificate or for the diploma then you can go up so that's what i did mm-hmm. yeah gotcha did you like paris oh yeah i love the city i mean there's um so much to explore and uh there's so much going on different from north america like the immigrants in in france they are from a different sort of um population. So the musical influences that they bring to the city um, is also quite different from the one that I was used to from the city of Toronto. So this this really sort of opens up my ears to hear different influences and the way that musicians and artists work to incorporate different influences in their work. Whether if it's in contemporary music, or if it's in world music. So there are like different approaches of how you would incorporate different elements. And I think that process is is special and it's very different from community to community. Is there an example of a specific culture that you encountered there that was new for you? So when I was in Toronto, I participated um, in Edway drumming, so Hmm. uh, West African, right? So this is sort of um, the world music tradition that was sort of started by Wesleyan University. And from there, many other schools um, started to incorporate sort of Edway drumming into their curriculum. And that was the main sort of African drumming experiences that I had. And when I was in Paris, the... Many of the African musicians in Paris, they are from French speaking um, places. Yeah. So the music that they brought 
were very different. So a lot more djembe mm-hmm. um, and the rhythms were very different. Yeah, so so that immediately I feel the separation. Um, the other thing is when I was an undergrad, I studied um, tabla mm-hmm. um, in the summers. I wasn't a very good student. I didn't practice throughout the year. I only practiced <laughs> in the summer. So <laughs> I would advise everybody to practice every day. If you decide to take out the tabla, don't follow my lead because okay. I never became very good. <laughs> I had the desire to be good. I just didn't have the discipline to be very good. Um, so then, um, so that's what I was studying on the side um, uh, in the summer. Um, then in Paris, I started playing this instrument called the tombak, mm. a Persian drum, yeah. a zarb. So I I um, I learned to play the zarb and. Uh, in Paris, you also can hear a lot of Persian music, uh, much more so than in Toronto at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So that was very special because this drum, just like the tabla, it's like a very soft, um, soft hand drum and uses a lot of like finger technique. Mm-hmm. Um, just the finger techniques are very different because with a lot of more snaps and um with kind of rolling with uh, nails, different mm. parts, the way that they play the roles are very different sounding. Um, so those are kind of things I did while I was there. Yeah. Excellent. How was your French? It comes and goes. Okay. It's like sitting in the back. If I'm not using it, I feel like I lost it. But then if I'm situated back, then it will come back to a certain point. Um, I also have the problem with with uh, Chinese. So mm. it's like if I had to start speaking in Chinese, like for the first five minutes, I will be like, who is this person talking in such strange Chinese? That is me. Oh, my God. But then after five minutes, um, it will be OK. OK, I still remember. Yeah. But French is, you know, it was my French was never that great, so the ramping up is much slower, Fair and enough. it cannot be ramped up to as high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Do you head to San Diego after this? Yep. So, how do you get connected there? I asked Steve if I could come and study with him. And at that time, he was teaching at um, Manhattan and UCSD. So one time when he was um, teaching in Manhattan, I uh, went to see him and we had noodles together. Mm. And, And I thought, oh, okay. I wanna come and study with Steve that quick <laughs> and then he's he said okay you come and study with me i don't know maybe it was something as simple as that but, <laughs> but that's kind of what happened <laughs> when you do go and study with him what are the things i guess at this point are there things in your um in your own kind of abilities playing so many percussion instruments that are like 
we need to work on this. So you're ready for this, 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 or is it kind of an extension of all the stuff that you've been doing in your various places? I think Steve is a very special teacher. He would say things like this. You know, the day that I decided to admit a student, I've already decided that I will give them the degree. So for him, what admission means is allowing the student to do what the student wants, and he will be in the supporting role to allow that to happen. Um, in the period when I was at UCSD, it was during the time that he was still playing a lot with the ensemble. So we would tour together. So he would play, so for example, we'll play Persa Fasa. Mm -hmm. And so we, when we play Persa Fasa, we played at uh, UCSD. We went up to play at Coburn um, because Coburn has a hole just across from uh, Disney Hall. So we play Persa Fasa at Coburn. And then we also play Persa Fasa down in Mexico. And Steve always played one of the ensemble parts. And what that meant is he actually rehearsed with us. And I, you know, I think that's very special because it takes a long time. Like when you want to play the piece the first time around, it takes a long time to learn. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And then once you play it repeatedly, it gets like much faster. And so the fact that he he opted to play one of the parts meant he committed to many hours of rehearsal with us, even though he himself did not need it. And, and so that was sort of his way of showing his commitment was through his commitment to play with the students. And, and you know, this is sort of, I think, a big difference between um, a research institution versus a teaching institution, because at the research school, you teach by leading. Right. Right. And the students learn by uh, modeling. Versus in the teaching school, you actually will teach. Mm -hmm. You teach, you break it down and walk through the steps. Um, so the experience is very different. What I would say is like, you know, one of the hallmarks of a great teacher is in their ability to pick their students. And I think what Steve has always strived to do is to pick a class that is very different, that's come, that's made up of players that are extremely different. So then the class in some ways would teach themselves because each person has something to learn from the other people. It's also kind of a level of humbleness too for him to say, I think, I think someone with a different mindset could be like, well, you can all support me while I'm the soloist. And it seems like he was like, no, I'm going to be part of the group too. Yeah. So, so I think that comes down to one's teaching philosophy. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, Steve's class was always strong, like meaning that everybody comes into the class can play. Yeah. I mean, they can play different things. Maybe they couldn't all play the same thing equally sure. well, but everybody was good at something. Yeah. 
Yeah. In a similar way, I think the hallmark is is not just the picking the students, but it's also that if, if a student wants to do whatever X, you know, to say, okay, I will give you the space and the resources for you to do X well. And it exactly. seems it probably has exactly. that, that feeling as well. Right, because um, UC San Diego is not a place that you go to become a generalist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really a place that's only designed to do one thing, contemporary music, whether okay. if it's in composition, um, performance, musicology, technology, the school's mandate, the department's mandate is to champion contemporary music. What did you learn uh, working with him in terms of uh, composer? And I, because I assume that there's a, there's a lot of new music that was be, that was going on here. Um, what did you learn from him about uh, composer interaction? I think Steve is very devoted to his collaborations with composers, especially the ones that have like long term relationships. So, like <laughs> so I think, so for example, uh, Roger Reynolds, yeah, John mm -hmm. Luther Adams, yeah. Um, with Fernie Howe, I think Brian wrote him one piece, maybe so it's just bone it's alphabet, just then, yeah. bone alphabet. Right. Uh, with Roger, I think Roger actually, um, composed, uh, I think three pieces for him, maybe even four. Um, so they will revisit their relationship and try to create something new. Or, or with John Luther Adams. So there, there's a long relationship that evolved into different things. They were not all solos. I mean, solo was really just one piece. But I think um, Steve's relationship with John, John Luther Adams, especially with the commission of uh, Inutriate, was a special moment for the composer. In, in in terms of how they thought about the outdoor music for the indoor and the indoor music for the outdoors and how that relationship became more fluid. Your research and your publications that come out of a lot of this work with your the DVD and the Cambridge Companion, was the decision to make a DVD about this was it an obvious thing when you started it or was it just like, oh, I've done all this research. I should actually, this is a, like a good final product to showcase what all the stuff I've researched. I think I need to back up a little bit. So okay. like when I was studying in Paris, I realized, oh yeah, there's like the, all this repertoire that no one is playing because the score doesn't explain enough like what's going on. Mm -hmm. And nobody could see these pieces to really understand how great they are. So when I um, started my doctoral re uh, research, it was clear that this was going to be one of the main research that I would tackle. So the biggest document that I put out was actually during the qualifying exam. So I put out um, a series of annotation of the pieces that I already played. So. I put out an annotation for um, uh, the Koako, the Get to the Song, the variation on a theme of Victor Hugo. And when I did my qualifying exam, actually all the community members 
um, urged me to publish these work that I've done during my qualifying exam. But then later when, when the internet became more stable, so that in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I noticed that Apegis had started a website and Apegis is kind of, you know, a copy left composer. So that he's a kind of composer that wants the initial run of prints it's not available anymore. Instead of reprinting the score, he just opted to migrate the score to a PDF for free download on his website. So at this point, there were people who were volunteering to typeset his manuscripts. And one of these people was Françoise Hivolan, a percussionist who also studied with Gaston, and she worked closely with, with Georges. Um, so so she was the one I think that had uh, contributed to the typesetting the manuscript to include some other annotations. The annotations that I have made versus like the annotations that she has made that's available um, for download on the website, they were slightly different because my annotation, for example, um, was from working together with Jean-Pierre Drouet. Her annotation was based on her um, working with Apegis. So the, when, when the score um, ambiguity was being cleared up, well, they were getting, getting OKs from the composer. Yes, you can do this. Yes, you can do this. But, but the OKs were different, were different items. So when you... So what you actually will understand is that the ambiguity also allows for a certain degree of freedom because we understand there was more than one version that was okay by the composer and there were different solutions to ambiguity. So that's why at some point I was like, oh, I'm just going to make this DVD. And my DVD actually <laughs> was supposed to, I think you can still do this. There is um there's like a function, an extra function you can turn on to that talks about all the ambiguity in the score. So it's an mm. annotated DVD. Mm. So there's a DVD that you'll watch, but if you turn on like the caption or one of the functions, right. it will tell you like some of the things that I selected to do that may be from score ambiguity. I think it's like a different, one of the audio settings would adds that. Yeah, that layer in there. Yeah, the, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. You before you you start teaching at Toronto, you you teach at McGill. Is that right? That's right. I taught at McGill between two thousand and six and twenty seventeen. Wow. Is there is there a comparison to Toronto to that school, or is that school just a completely? Because I know you're in Montreal, so that's that's one part. But what's What's is there a similar difference, or what was you, you? What were you heading into when you were working into that job? McGill is set up more like a conservatory that's embedded in a university. Okay. So um, McGill had both schools are about the same size. Uh, I think at, at some point McGill was bigger, but then U of T became a little bit bigger. So I I would say they are around the same number, nine hundred students. I would say. They have different programs. So one of the flagships for 
for the McGill program is the sound engineering and music technology program. Mm. Uh, so, so I would say that those two programs are the flagships and internationally um, important. Then McGill had um, very good performance program and very strong sort of music theory and musicology. It does not really champion music education or ethnomusicology. So I think that's where the split is. So U of T has a world famous ethnomusicology program and it has a very large um, music um, education program. Small music technology program that is on its way up is an area that school is expanding and also emerges um, music technology and sound engineering together to make a more sort of uh, flexible program for the students. And I think that program has been doing very well. Um, because of the difference in ethnomusicology, the curriculum at U of T is not all Western music. So, for example, there are many world music ensemble opportunities for the students. Uh, that is not something that McGill offered. McGill really is more of a European uh, model based conservatory. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, did you, within that model, were you able to incorporate the kind of the theatrical side? Yeah. Into the, into the program? Yeah. 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 Um, I was able to do whatever that I wanted to do at McGill. McGill was very supportive that way. I had a um, very good experience. Oh, excellent, really. Um, experience there uh, working and building the program. I had a very international class. Um, I still do. It's just the international makeup was very different. McGill has always had a very large American um, student population. So when I was there, I would say that half of my studio were American students. Yeah. Um, versus uh, at U of T, I, um, my studio is still very international, but the makeup is more spread out. So like, for example, right now I have students from South America, Central America, Asia, and then from the States. It just, the makeup is different. Yeah. Yeah. Were there some limitations to either the size there or was there anything in terms of expectations for where students needed to be utilized within the rest of the program at the conservatory there? Like, you know, in terms of like large ensemble thing, I always think of it like, was there a need for a certain amount of students so that the large ensembles can focus as they I would need to? I think that is uh, the same for all schools. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not special for McGill or Toronto. It's just um, there's a certain quota that the ensemble directors would like to have. And then there's a certain quota of uh, students the practice rooms would like to have. Um, because when you have six rooms, you can accommodate, you know, maybe... 18 students. If you have 10 rooms, you may be able to accommodate 20 students. Mm -hmm. So it depends on it's it's a tricky math. Yeah. Yeah. Did McGill have a similar situation you described about Toronto? Because it, it's downtown also, right? In yeah. Montreal. Did it have a like sp space limitations of a similar nature? 
yes, yes. McGill or well, Montreal real estate uh, relatively is cheaper, mm. but but that doesn't really impact the the school space issue. Um, the school space issue is more or less the same historically. There's this area in the basement that's for percussion. So those are the rooms that we had, mm-hmm. seven rooms. Two rooms were tiny. And I think and maybe now there are eight rooms, but that's kind of the situation that I, I would say is similar in terms of constraints of uh, real estate and um, the ensembles it needs to serve. Did you like Montreal? Yes. I think Montreal is a, it's a fantastic place to visit, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to live there all year long, the winter can be quite rough, actually. <laughs> yeah. Rougher than Toronto? Yes. Mm. Yes, the winter is uh, significantly colder. Mm. It's like the difference between uh, living in New York versus living in Minnesota. Mm. Yeah. I, I was, you could even say it's probably, it might be the difference between living in New York City and living in Buffalo <laughs> <laughs> or Rochester. Well, well, okay, but Buffalo temperature is more like Toronto. Buffalo just gets a lot of snow because yeah. of the south of the lake. But right. the temperature in Buffalo is not that low. But as you go towards like Minnesota, Minneapolis, yeah. I think yeah. that gets really cold. So that's yeah. more like that's more like um, Montreal weather. Yeah. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, isn't Montreal's not that far? Was it New Hampshire? It's close to something like relatively, right? Uh, it's uh, adjacent, not New Hampshire. Is it New Hampshire the border? Vermont. It's. I know it's kind of. It's. It's north of there. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it, even I, New York. Like. Bord- yeah, part of it borders New York, and part of it borders another state. Maybe mm. Vermont. I think that might be Vermont then. Yeah. Ver- What's the biggest city in Vermont? Burlington. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's very close to Burlington. It's about uh, 90 minutes to Burlington. Did you have to brush up on your French there or were you could, was the English enough to make that happen? McGill was was primarily for English um, speaking uh, university. So for work, I never had to speak French. I Mm. only needed to speak French outside of the school. Did, did it get any better from what, from your time in Paris? Not really, because <laughs> I, I didn't have to use it for work. So uh-huh. so there was a limited usage for my French. So my French never never became excellent because uh, I wasn't really doing, I wasn't really speaking French. Uh, regularly. Yeah, I mean it's it's fine. I could do you know all the shopping and I can have a simple conversation. If I don't want to be misunderstood, then I will prefer to explain things in English. Gotcha. <laughs> you had been at McGill as long as you had. What led you to decide to go to Toronto, even though you had kind of done all this building at McGill as you had? Yeah. So 
I think it has to do with my family that's a big part of it. Um, just because we are very spread out, like to be able to just kind of bring back to one general area seems like the right thing to do. We were just the two of us in Montreal and uh, everybody else was somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So at least this way, the majority of the extended family are all within sort of the same hundred kilometers within an hour drive. And that felt like it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Gotcha. Plus you were, you were, you were going home musically too. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the U of T percussion program and sort of this long history with the members of Nexus, it also felt like uh, that was a good thing to do for me. Yeah. Well, I finished up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. All right. First question, Ayun, is what's an issue in uh, percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? <laughs> organization. I think most of my frustrations has to do with organization. Yeah, not the actual playing nor the music. I know mm-hmm. people feel very differently uh, about, for example, how to hear the drum. Well, there are different camps, but but that doesn't that doesn't drive me crazy. But but I think organization, which I I I don't know how you feel. As we get older, we have to organize more and more just for sanity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're young, you can kind of coexist. With chaos. <laughs> Poison, right. no? I you got thrive, you. Yeah. You thrive in chaos. Like you go into the room and the room is a mess. You're like, oh, I feel great. <laughs> at some point, it's just like, this is not going to work because how my room looks like represents how my brain feels like. Right. In order for me to feel <laughs> serenity, my mm-hmm. room has to look the same. So my brain will feel that way. So I think organization drives me crazy or the lack of organization can drive me crazy yeah gotcha <laughs> and, and because students are often disorganized oh yeah so i think that drives me crazy yeah yeah you don't want that to affect infect your possible disorganization <laughs> that's right i don't want other people's disorganization to influence my ability to feel serene all the time so i think that (laughs) i gotcha that's great all right next question ayun um i think there's a various there's various ways that i feel like this could go for you because of your experiences so i tend to frame this next one as being a woman in the percussion field and kind of leave it to you but you i think you are a Immigrant experience, I feel like, needs to be, should probably be incorporated as well into this answer. See, I think when I was younger, I didn't really realize how being a woman in the field was a marginal group. Mm. And, And I also didn't really realize the 
potential obstacles that were stacked up against me, both as a woman and as an immigrant, as someone who didn't really always understand some of the unspoken rules um, concerning how things operated. Um, I think if I did, I probably would have quit. Mm. But because I I was oblivious to obstacles, I think that's what it was. I was oblivious. So that's how I have come this far. Yeah. I think if I was really aware of all the things that were stacked up against me, I think I would have quit. Mm. But while it sounds like, though, everything, even just you getting started, it seems like you've had a pretty strong focus at least from the outside and the way you've described it, that you, your ability to just kind of focus on the thing, on the task ahead has been kind of your mode of operating. I think I was lucky, meaning that I always had uh, very good mentors. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were all men, but nevertheless, they were very good for me. Um, they, um, that's why I think I never considered the gender issue until much later on. It's because I was always surrounded by men. But I think one thing that maybe we didn't talk about this. I went to a high school that had a music class and the music class was mixed gender, but the music class was situated in a male high school. So, so during my teenage years, I was used to be in an environment of mostly men because this high school had 3,000 boys and 89 girls. Oh my God. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> so, so I was used to dealing with boys all the time ever since I was 15. Mm -hmm. Those were the only people I ever interacted with outside of my class. Yeah. So I was oblivious to the gender obstacle or issues surrounding the difference in the proportion because that has always been my reality since I came into consciousness of mm -hmm. what I was going to do. So that never presented itself as an obstacle to me because I never experienced the opposite. Sure. I became a lot more aware of now recently Something has kind of shifted since COVID. So, so for example, this year, I found that um, most of my applicants at the graduate level are either uh, non-white or female. And before, I never had this kind of pronounced sort of selection right? Yeah. Before it was more like, oh, we're just going to apply. So it was more, still more um, male and more white. But now I feel like when students are picking who they will study with, they would look at whether if this person can understand where they're coming from. The students that apply, do, do you know these students or they they know who you are and and they seem to be wanting to uh, work with someone who either would have a more closer 
right off the bat understanding of what they're dealing with. I think what happens is that when you want to go study with somebody for graduate school, if you're very serious about wanting to study with them, you will first reach out. Mm-hmm. So, no, I mean, I didn't know these students, but through the admission process, I will correspond with them and got to know them more than just uh, coming to audition and saying hi. So we will have some correspondences and some of them may involve, oh yeah, we'll have a lesson together, depending on what the whatever the applicant would like to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes I do find myself, you know, I will go out to do master classes or concerts in foreign places. And a couple of years down the road, then somebody will say, Oh, I want to come and study with you. And I'll be like, Oh, I already know you, please come. So um and in this regard, I think like couple of the festivals that I um, teach at have been um, very good for this. So Soundscape, BAM Center, um, that has been very good. Um, also, I run this conference called Transplanted Roots, um, a research symposium. So this um, takes place every other year. So then throughout this, I get to know some students, but mostly other colleagues. But um, so maybe other colleagues would say, oh, yeah, you could consider studying with Irene as one of your options. So I think that also happens. Yeah. A few more questions for you. Uh, these are now we're going to go a little beyond the percussion scope, but you've been to you've lived in and worked in a ton of awesome cities. And I'm curious where somewhere you have not traveled to that you still want to get to. South America. New Zealand. I think I uh, well next year I'm going to I hope to go to Australia and New Zealand uh, during my sabbatical. I look forward to that very much. Also, South America I've only been to Brazil, and uh, I would like to see maybe Argentina. Um, I really love the audience in in Latin America. Um, it makes playing concerts so enjoyable because people still really love just live music. Um, They don't have to understand everything to appreciate it. So every time when I have played a concert in Latin America, I feel like, oh, what I'm doing is so relevant. That's good to know. I'll I'll keep that in mind. Like, there's the audience. No. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been to Africa. I think at some point I would like to go too. But but right now that is not on the very top of the list. Again, kind of thinking of, of the places you've studied and, and, and lived. Are there places where, like, if, like if you get to go back to San Diego, for example, are there some pl- the food places that you like have to go to? Or Paris or the places where you like, I have to I have to eat here. While I'm here. Okay. If you go to San Diego, Mm -hmm. uh, you should eat at Sushi sushi Ota. Okay. That's sushi. Or there are some really nice uh, ramen places now. And of course, um, tacos. There's this place called, I think it's called Taco Shop. It's quite good. In Paris, I like the bread 
I think the boulangerie is very impressive early mm-hmm. in the morning. Um, I think in that regard, Mocho is also excellent. You can have very good bread. What was um, what was the last place? What was it? In Montreal is also great because you, you still get sort of the French style bakeries in Montreal. In Paris, I would probably uh, check out some Moroccan places. Mm. They have very good couscous or tagine. I love that. When I go to Paris, I definitely try to have tagine. I cannot really eat a lot of dairy anymore. So French food is almost like completely off the list. <laughs> that's that's sad. <laughs> well, relatedly, uh, somewhat to that previous question, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I almost put a kitchen on fire a oh. few times, but uh a few times. Oh, this is okay. Yeah. Not just once. But uh yeah. I I saved myself. <laughs> what 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 were you trying to cook? One of the times. You don't have to go through each experience. Just Oh, it just mostly with a kitchen towel, I put it in the wrong place. I lit the wrong stove and it caught the fire. I think that's pretty bad. I, <laughs> I, I don't tell anyone. I don't tell anyone about that. So this is your first to know. Okay. Ho- hopefully no one is listening. Okay. <laughs> um, kitchen fires. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty bad. I mean, I cooked a lot. Mm. So, and sometimes I get very paranoid. Like one time, okay, I often think I forgot to turn the stove off. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've been there. Yeah. You've been there, right? Yeah. But sometimes I would be so paranoid. One time I, well, I thought, okay, I must have left the stove on. I I call a handyman uh-huh. that I have that was working somewhere around the house. Yeah. I said, oh, can you please go and check on the stove? It was fine. <laughs> but those are just the nightmares that I get. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> do, do you have a signature dish? Or dishes? Well, people always like the eggplants I made. I mm. made very good eggplants. Awesome. And I also made very good, I made very good boeuf bourguignon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I made very good pasta. I like um, experimenting with pasta. Have you um, have you ever made your own pasta? Yeah. yeah, yeah. My wife does that. It's it's awesome. Whenever she she makes that happen. Yeah, for sure. Well, I make Gordon. Uh, what's his name? Ramsey. Um, beef uh, Wellington. Mm. So I think I make that. I can make a good one. Uh, and I make sort of fusion. I think my best moments are when I'm making things up mm-hmm. and I would be kind of skeptical. I say, well, you know, this may be like, well, edible. It will always be edible. Can I promise it to be very good? I don't know. I just made it up. But mm-hmm. I think those are the places, like those are the times I made the best dishes. How did you know that I cook a lot? I, I don't. 
I, you don't. I, no, I just I asked. That's a question I ask. Oh, okay. Frequently, I just I just like I like food, so I always like hearing what people's uh, you know kitchen expertise. And frequently, it's in, a lot of percussionists are do a lot of cooking. It turns out. <laughs> yeah. What What do you cook? I'm not I'm not that great. Um, I my wife does most of the cooking. I clean up after her, and we have a good we have a good relationship that way. But no, I most I mean the thing that I'm most I guess proud of is uh, one of our I have a uh, one of our close friends is um, is an amazing cook and he's Filipino and he taught us how to do like a a stir fry, and so like I wrote the recipe in my phone and every time I make it I kind of go through his steps and it, it's, it's quite good I I like it. What sauce do you use for that stir? I use um, soy sauce, fish oil, sesame oil. In that order, and and ginger. Oh, and uh, the other thing is ginger with butter. Cook the cook the rice in that. Start there with a little bit of soy sauce, and then stir fry vegetables I've already put on. Then add a little bit of the little bit of soy sauce, the fish oil, and then and then add the sesame oil. Cook that at the end. Something like that. Yeah. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it's it's not bad. Not my I didn't I didn't come up with it, but I I I like it. <laughs> so last night I made eggplants. So when you yeah. make eggplants, it's a two-step process. So depending on if you're making eggplants, the Chinese way or the Italian way, mm. the eggplants needs to be cut differently. Mm. Once you have it cut, you have to soak them in water with salt for at least half an hour then you would pat them dry and then you have to fry them because frying them changes the texture, um, gives them more texture and sweetness. So you do that. And if the frying process actually takes a long time because you have to fry them in batches. Mm. Um, then once you fry them the first time, you then get them out, then you let them kind of dry again. Then you stir fry the whole thing together using a little bit of bacon. Then I will use garlic. I kind of um, stir fry that. Then I might put in some basil or cilantro. Then you put in the eggplant. Then you put in a little bit of cooking wine. You let the cooking wine e evaporate. And then after that, you will add in soy sauce and then top it up with sesame oil and then garnish it with green onion and then a little bit more cilantro. So nice. that will be like a restaurant dish. And if you want to make it look extra fancy, you can dab some white sesame seeds on top. Yes. No, that sounds awesome. I'm I'm I'm, in, I'm a fan already. All right. <laughs> my my mom um makes it one of her her signature, she's an amazing cook, and she makes eggplant parmesan. And it's one of those where my siblings will always ask for it, and she's always like she'll make it, but she it's a very exhaustive process to make that. She basically is like, that's like the longest dish I have to make of all of all the dishes. So it sounds like that's similar to the case for your eggplant dish. So does your mom make the eggplant parmesan yes. in layers? Yes. So like tomato sauce, eggplant, then bechamel, tomato sauce. Bake it. Yep. And it's like 
you know, it's like, you know, that wide of a stack of, it's so good. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's the classic eggplant parmesan. So it's basically yeah. a replacement of lasagna. Like when you think right. about lasagna, you take out the noodle, mm-hmm. and put in layers of eggplant that's uh, eggplant parmesan. Yeah. Yeah. So that's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You know, you're in Toronto and I'm wondering if, do you have a sports fandom? I like the basketball team. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's called the Raptors, right? The Raptors, yeah. They won the title a few years back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, the problem is when I watch sports, I get really nervous. Uh-huh. So I get super excited and super nervous and I can't sit straight. I jump up and down and then I have to run around. So I cannot watch like, I cannot watch too many games because I can't go to sleep afterward. I mean, most people watch sports to relax, mm-hmm. which I do with football yeah. sometimes because I cannot find the ball <laughs> when I'm watching football. So it's very relaxing for me. Or like <laughs> baseball, super uh-huh. relaxing. Half of the time, I don't know where the ball is. Yeah. So I'm like very relaxing. But if I have to watch that basketball, which is a sport I kind of played when I was a kid, I get really nervous. Um, for example, last year, no, two years ago, in the Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics, um, there was this badminton. Have mm. you ever watched badminton? Uh, not very much. Okay. So so it was a special category of badminton that the Tokyo um, edition had. Mm-hmm. And most of the competitors were Asian countries. Okay. So Taiwan was in the final for the single female and the double male. Okay. So um, basically, the in, so at this time, when this game happened, I was actually in Taiwan in quarantine. Mm. So I was in the hotel. Yeah. And, um, and I watched this game. I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I thought I was going to throw up. <laughs> That that's how that's how the whole thing went, and and then a bunch of my friends that were texting, and then not just me, at least another friend was equally as nervous as me. So she said, "Oh, I can't watch it anymore. I'm too nervous. I turn off the TV," and I'm like, "Yeah, I feel the same. I have to turn off the TV. I'm so nervous." And and this was a, a very contentious um, competition because it, the finals were against China. It was Taipei against China. So so the double uh, male one won the gold, but the single female one lost and only got silver. I can't imagine the level of the layers that must go into any matchup between Taiwan and China have to be. That's right. That's right. When when the the male double won, yeah. The Chinese network pulled a plug so they couldn't see the end. They stopped the broadcasting. So they so that you couldn't like you couldn't watch them celebrate, basically, right? Like the game ends and boom, it's off. <laughs> right. I think, yeah. Yeah. It was very stressful because you know, I and I I feel very sorry for all these athletes because their competitions has so much sort of pressure behind yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last couple, Ayun, strangest 
funniest or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? So I think 1996. Okay. <laughs> so Richard Bluefish went to play in this place called Zacatecas. Do you know where that is? It's like an inner state in Mexico. I, was, like, I think it was like Mexico is where I don't yeah, play. It, it's, like, it's like a desert. And okay. we play we play this amphitheater. And there were like hundreds of people. There was like packed. Yeah. And and people would like clap very funny. Sometimes it would be like this. And sometimes it would just clap like crazy. Uh-huh. I asked my friend Ivan Manzania, I said, what's happening with this clapping? And then he's like, you know, sometimes they don't like it. <laughs> is that this is that this one? The, the slow clap. <laughs> wow. I mean, okay, in the moment I was like, oh, we're so crushed. But no, I just think that's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) So so you only realize this, I assume, afterwards, right? Okay. What's up with the clapping? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess they didn't like it very much. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's universal then. That, that's universal. Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes the, the clap is like this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's amazing. <laughs> All right. Great. <laughs> All right. Last question, Ayun. Uh, one piece of art. Could be in any genre, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything. Of one piece of art that's impacted you the most recently. I mean, right before the pandemic, I went to visit Binko Gopakar in Paris. I went to this museum. It was a museum that I had visited when I in the 1990s. And then I haven't been back until 2019. And it's a set of water lilies by Monet. Oh, uh, the orangery? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. 24 years since my initial visit to the museum, it really made an impression on me just being you know, it's like a whole thing. The whole building it was about this sort of water lilies and variations in different seasons. And the whole place is quite sparse because it only showcases those work. And I thought it was very special that a permanent house, it's only to house those work because most of the artwork kind of changes. And so you can spend time in this space um, and just be with these flowers and enjoying them and the light. It was very beautiful. Then later on, now I'm thinking, now I have, then I was in Houston a few months ago 
And when I was in Houston, I went to the museum district. And there, I was so impressed with the stuff that they had, including this, you know, the chapel um, in Houston that houses um, the Rothko Chapel. Oh, I've heard about this. Yeah, so the Rothko Chapel is very impressive. And also these drawings by um, the Menil, the Menil, that was very impressive. M-E-N-I-L, that is mm. very impressive. But then there's this other one that also only um, displays one person's work. And the person's work, that at first when you look at it, it was just like sketches. But then there were sketches in both like small form and very large form. When I was in Paris, the first time I'd been there, which was last summer, the the Monet in Laurentry was my favorite thing. Like that, oh. the rooms, the fact that you could stay, you could um, stand in various places in those spots and see completely different, like the, they change from where you stand because yeah. there's so much in there. Yeah. I, just, I, I was blown away. Like I, I didn't want to leave. It was yeah. so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very beautiful space to be in. Yeah. It, you know, it's like there are museums that are built to exhibit art. Then there are places they are built to experience art. Mm-hmm. And those are almost like two different spaces. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the same in the <laughs> in this one, yes. This one yes. is the same. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was very nice talking to you. Yes. Yes. We're done. And yeah, I man, this is I was so pumped to get to talk to you more. Like I, I was I've I've really enjoyed. Thank you. Yeah, me too. You're a great listener. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, I, you're, I mean, your stories are so, your story is so compelling uh, oh. in so many ways, but I also, I could tell even when you at PASIC, I, I, there was something like, I don't know what it was. I think it might've been just maybe your sense of humor that just came out really, really quickly. And I was just like, oh my gosh, she'd be so great to talk to. Right. And it's true. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, what a joy to chat with Ayun Huang for these two episodes. It was a complete blast, and I look forward to hearing more about her adventures in the upcoming years. Thanks again, Ayun. This week's Rave is a narrative podcast series. A podcast talking about another podcast. Go figure. The podcast series is Holy Week, produced through The Atlantic Magazine led by journalist and senior editor there, Van Newkirk II, now available where you get your podcasts. Holy Week is an investigation into the week of riots that took place following the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968. The assassination took place in Memphis, Tennessee, but its reverberations were worldwide. And most of those riots occurred during the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday in the Christian faith called Holy Week, considered the most sacred week of the year. Those worldwide reverberations, however, get focused in this series to events that took place 
all throughout the week following the assassination in the nearly all-black neighborhood of Cardozo in Washington, D.C. Part of the excellence in this limited series podcast is due to Van Newkirk II's wonderful journalistic work. This involves talking to folks who were involved in the civil rights era at the time, some of whom he's had a long relationship with, and most of them are in their 70s and older, and getting a fuller picture of what was going on during that week. The storytelling and audio work throughout the podcast episodes are incredible, which include many contemporary news reports, interviews, and some truly stunning and honestly shocking speeches from that era that you'll have to hear to believe. The death of Dr. King ended up being a transitional moment in the fight for civil rights in the United States, and the anger from his assassination is highlighted in this show. It is eight episodes long, each about 40 to 45 minutes in length, and very well worth your time. Check out Holy Week wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.